On September 21, 1979, a Fiat manager named Carlo Guiliano is leaving work for the day. The thin, gray-haired, and bespectacled head of planning had been reviewing the cutting-edge technological production line at the Fiat Rivalta plant, a window into the future of science and business. As he got into his Fiat Ritmo, a nucleus of armed combatants approached and fired. Guiliano was slain on that afternoon, and the company knew that it had to react. Fiat executives were a tight-knit group. They often had worked together in previous companies and brought one another into Fiat to be consigned to the ornate structure with which that company ruled over a large part of the Italian economy. Times were different now, and the executives turned to incite a struggle against the workers. Laying off 61 workers a week later, the company sped up its plans for a mass action from the top against the base. Fiat announced a round of mass layoffs, around 20,000 people. After 11 years of militant class struggle within the factories, the working class thought that it had seen an end to the days of cutbacks. Many believed that by repeatedly making compromises, by regularly throwing the radicals under the bus, and by pushing even harder to join the managerial state dominated by the Christian Democrats since 1947, they could maintain a status quo. Wages had risen, but restructuring had made many jobs more precarious, as automation pushed out more unskilled workers and the rest of the workforce became more professionalized. The old image of the mass worker was at stake, the camaraderie of the working class, and the jobs of thousands of people. The strike was long, it was brutal, it lasted 35 days, and it ended in catastrophic failure. In the dismal days, weeks, and months that passed, hundreds of people killed themselves, as the stand that the workers had taken crumbled into the most significant defeat since the 1950s. Breaking the 1980s, Fiat strike gave Fiat the added push that it needed to reform itself from the characteristic corporation of the Italian boom years into the defining corporation of the neoliberal 1980s. For Sergio Bologna, one of the founders of Potere Operaio, who had been part of that workerist current in the 1960s that did so much to contribute to what he calls the 10 years of class conflict between 1969 and 1980, the failed fiat strike ushered in 22 years of social peace, a time of the stagnation of workers' struggle and rising unemployment that saw the catastrophic disintegration of the leading parties and the rise of the post-politics of Silvio Berlusconi. This is the story of Fiat Motors and its transformation at the end of the 1970s, but it's also the story of Prima Linea's downfall and how it took the militancy of the workers' struggle down with it. And lastly, it's the shadow cast by the end of the 1970s over the next two decades. Hi everybody, I'm your host Alexander Reed Ross and this is the Years of Lead Pod. So in this series, I've shown how the main armed groups of the 1970s in Italy shifted and changed across the decade and into the 1980s, focusing on the kidnapping and assassination of Aldo Moro in 1978 as a kind of hinge that did three specific things. First, it brought a lot of those on the left who loosely associated with the area of autonomia, its thriving print media, and its myriad acronyms to begin disassociating from the armed struggle entirely. Second, while alienating the armed struggle, it also intensified it, bringing the most violent currents to the fore in what turned into a competitive effort to one-up the other groups. 
And third, it brought the state to crack down against the main theorists, organizers, and activists of Autonomia, who the judiciary believed were responsible for the entire militant struggle of the decade. Amid this reaction, the death of a number of members of both Prima Linea and the Brigate Rosse in wild shootouts with the police, including some of their most crucial organizers, really hobbled the armed struggle. Among the Brigate Rosse, for instance, the crucial figure of Rocco Micheletto had been arrested in 1980. Involved in several kneecappings and killings by the time of his incarceration, Micheletto had actually been a Communist Party official in Turin and changed sides to the Red Brigades during the big fiat strike of 1973 when the militants blamed the party and the union for selling out. Things had changed so much since then, however. The year before Micheletto's arrest, former fiat worker turned factory council delegate Guido Rosa was executed by the Red Brigades in Genoa as a stooge of the Communist Party, which by then was complicit in the anti-terrorism strategy against the armed party. So, with one turn, the brigades lost favor with industrial workers after killing a communist, and with the next turn, they lost a critical link to the fiat workers in Micheletto. The continued alienation of the brigades from the factories was reflected also in their intellectual disputes, as the point of their activity began to shift after the great fiat strike of 1973, becoming less and less movement-centered and more and more focused on extreme acts of violence against journalists, individuals blamed for the restructuring of the industrial economy, and the special prison system for members of the armed struggle. As the movementist and organizationalist lines began to separate, with the movementists largely in jail and the organizationalists behind the wheel, the brigade's alienation from the larger movement became a significant issue that some attempted to change from below by forming a new column in Milan concentrated specifically on factory organizing. However, they were soon ostracized from the brigades after two fairly senseless killings, and the gap grew wider between movement and organization. One of the fascinating things about the Brigate Rosse, which was characteristic of actually the whole Italian extra-parliamentary left of the 1970s, was that they always tried to follow very closely the technical changes of the industrial economy as it pertained both to international relations and domestic policy. For this, the experience of the original workerists in the 1960s was essential. It was through these discussions in the old journals of the Operaisti that these innovative theories like the mass worker and the social worker were first addressed and debated, and their theories derived directly from highly specific observations about managerial adaptations to worker strategies going department by department, workshop by workshop, in the old spirit of the factory bulletin. By stringing together commonalities from these incisive analyses on the molecular level, broader organizational developments would be configured into a new party, or so the workerists thought. When their group failed to formulate a truly effective mass party alternative to the Communist Party powerhouse, the movement sort of disintegrated into autonomist formulae that could rally people to the streets, address class conflict in non-industrial settings, and even better analyze socio-political changes in the light of economic restructuring, like the impact of precarity and the rise of problems of unemployment and underemployment. But the shift of both 
armed groups and autonomia from mass-based organizing in large factories like Mirafiori, Fiat's massive district of factories in the city of Turin, also represented the increasing concretization of the Communist Party's power. After the Fiat strike of 1973, where militant workers and the Red Brigades harassed the bosses to the point where it was almost difficult to tell the two apart, the Communist Party retaliated against workers' militancy. The more the armed groups raised the stakes of their attacks, the more the Communist Party retrenched their position within the growing security state that was developing bigger networks of informants, surveillance, and prisons. The continued alienation of the armed groups from the movement also impacted alienation within the armed groups themselves, and nowhere could this be seen more than with Prima Linea. The last time we met PL, a number of their members were getting killed, and one of their main guys, Marco Donat-Katin, was thinking about leaving the organization. As the April 7th investigations into Autonomia were ramping up in 1979, PL had murdered progressive magistrate Emilio Alessandrini, and on May 11th, a blitz on their Tuscan organizing center took a number of their players off the board. According to the police report, Sergio de Elia, quote, was arrested for receiving stolen goods from typewriters and mimeograph machines, proceeds of theft against the Faculty of Architecture of the University of Florence had been found in possession of writings related to programs of armed struggle and rules of behavior from clandestine. The second had been denounced for damage and other things to the detriment of the university opera and for subversive association. At first, the investigation by Polizia. The judicial proceedings, mainly aimed at locating the home of the two suspects, did not achieve this goal but led to the identification of various people who gravitated around the two. The initial suspicions of the police were corroborated by the tenor of some phone calls, which were distinguished from the others by their extremely circumspect tone and coded language expressions, as well as by the use of names other than the real ones. So here we can see, like, the weird world of the nebulous um, prima linea kind of biting them on the ass once police get aware of what they're doing because they're speaking in code and they're obviously creating these airs of conspiracy. And it's the very effort to conceal their strategies and tactics that gets them in trouble. On May 26, a bigger bust aided by General Dalla Chiesa in Prato hit PL's National Press Center, finding a stash of weapons and explosives. And then, on July 9th, the counterterrorism police snatched Nicola Solimano, a member of the National Command, at a Florence railway station by chance. So by the summer of 1979, PL was hobbled both by death and by arrest. It's probably obvious that this group lacked the discipline of the Brigate Rosse. When they got arrested, members of the PL would often simply deny the charges rather than going through the theatrical slogan that they were just political prisoners, and soon a number of them would turn pentiti, because there were a number of squads attached to the central body of PL, but very little compartmentalization, minor figures associated with those squads had basic knowledge of the personnel at the top of the organization, bases, homes, and so forth. 
So while their loose structure was at first helpful to amass a considerable number of militants and to inflate their stature through the overuse of acronym-rich squads, patrols, and cells, it was a knife through the heart waiting to happen. At the same time, the movement's complicated relationship to drug use enabled a number of those whose existence was more than parallel to prima linea, like Lotto Continua, to denounce the Pentiti as drug addicts and mythomaniacs. So let's face it, more than the other armed groups, PL was part of the raucous subculture of the 1970s. Their members would have done drugs and partied in some places, whereas other members would have joined armed patrols against drug dealers in others. This gave the drug world less than a sense of loyalty to the organization as a whole, and it's believed that small-time drug traffickers were some of the confidential informants who dished to police. The arrests and the pentiti made the organization extremely paranoid, per usual. One guy named William Wacker was particularly suspected of having been an informer, but I'll get back to that name in a bit. What this increase in paranoia did was to lead the hawks in the organization to stress a disaggregation from the movement. The problem of lack of compartmentalization was a relic of an age when the PL had been an organization one could pass in and out of at will. On the other hand, the arrests were felt as a slide into a kind of delirium. One militant later said that it led to the, quote, rejection of a reality that I was unable to face. I took it so badly that I fell ill and had to be hospitalized. Another militant and member of the National Command, Alessandro Bruni, stated, quote, I closed my relationship with PL in 1979. I realized that the fabric with which the movement lived and existed in the city is drastically less. The Pialini were starting to come to the realization that they weren't as popular in 1979 as they had been at their peak in 1977 when they really formed the armed front line of militant protests during widespread riots. In Milan, Mario Ferrandi met with Bruno Laronga, the founding member of the organization who had been shot in the leg by friendly fire during one of their recent shootouts. He, quote, made a painful impression on me. He was unreasoning, limped after the events in Via Milio, and seemed a prisoner of a situation now stronger than him and existing beyond his personal will. So there's this compulsion in Prima Linea to maintain course along with an existential pull to leave the armed struggle completely and just go back to normal life. Maurice Bignami, who had been part of the Bologna Autonomia before turning toward the area around the Milanese journal Rosso and then joining Prima Linea, could not let go, but also felt the pull to abandon everything. Quote, in the summer of 79, already there, we feel that our choice is not reversible. The games are over. It's not like we can say, let's dissolve Prima Linea, or let's dissolve into the movement. We felt, even with anguish and a sense of failure, that probably the road we liked least, the one we wanted to avoid, was the only one in the end that was it. It was the frontal opposition between what was left of the revolutionary movement and the state. There we chose, in 1979, to keep PL standing, indeed, to play all the playable immediately. 
The group gets together in a September conference in Bordighera, and a split forms within Prima Linea. Here, Marco Donat-Catin and Massimo Prandi gain what they claim is the full support of the Florence section. Within the conference, this rupture in the group is sort of subtle, but it appears to be between the line of detachment from Prima Linea and that of more strict organizational mores. The following month, October, an internal unsigned document is developed with Prandi's help, and it attacks PL's, quote, arbitrarily subjective forcing of operational voluntarism, of its confused campaigns weak in intensity and extension, of its practical and theoretical inadequacy. It called for the elimination of the gray area between legal and extra-legal activity, arguing that PL should really render legal everything that it did that wasn't super illegal, and it should make armed struggle much more serious and regimented. Lastly, it argued for a true, quote, organization of the exile, which would better meet the needs of clandestine activity. This proposal, mostly from Marco Donat-Catin, actually gave life to a new assemblage within and outside of Prima Linea, which did little more than carry out a few bank robberies and then escape to France. Meanwhile, the break in Prima Linea was now impassable. People spoke of Donat-Catin's betrayal of the organization. The door flung open in Turin, particularly, where the idea that all extra-legal practices be formalized and made legitimate completely erased that important buffer zone between the armed struggle and the outside. Even the practice of formally criticizing the organization in writing left a paper trail that left many people feeling exposed in the organization. In sum... Andrea Tartulli puts it really well. Donat Catin and Prandi preach a sort of strategic retreat precisely to protect the security of the legal collectives and because they no longer support the intensity of the clash reached by Prima Linea. The rest of the group, on the other hand, considers a political phase concluded and argues that the safeguard of the levels of conflict reached steps for a hedgehog closure of the organization and its centralization. Both options conceal behind an ideological cloak the real impasse to which the project of the group is prey. If, for the latter, the upteenth subjective forcing transforms what remains of Prima Linea into something very similar to the Brigate Rosse, for the former, the retreat results in a messy rush to the French border. Prima Linea, as a group, decides to consolidate its command structure into a three-man national leadership and to carry on fighting with more strategic definition. They would target specific things, industrial restructuring, corporate command. In short, they would be more like the Red Brigades. And first on the agenda, as always, was the return to the factories. But by this point, as already mentioned, the wall between the factories and the armed struggle was hard to overcome. The communists' hardening of their control over the factories was directly related to what they saw as the armed struggle's offensive presence within mass labor struggle. And that feedback loop led to the two getting into an increasingly polarized antipathy. Groups like Prima Linea had to content themselves a lot of the time with doing things like assassination and woundings of managers that they proposed as solidarity with the workers. 
And that's exactly what they would get back to doing. But before getting into Prima Linea's next big act, something that would have repercussions that would be felt for decades and would change the course of Italian economic life, I need to talk about what was going on in the factories, and especially Fiat Mirafiori. I'm going to rely here a lot for the backstory of Fiat's transformations during this period on Giorgio Garuzzo's testimony from his book Fiat I Segreti di un Epoca, published in 2006. Garuzzo worked in the electronics industry during the 1960s and then moved to Fiat in 1976 to work as a manager. When he came to Fiat, it was near the peak of the years of lead and managers like him were already targeted and paranoid. Here's how he describes his first day. The guards on duty at the door stiffened and raised their hand to the visor in a military-style salute as was the practice in Fiat at the time. The car plunged into a dim light of an immense underground garage crowded with cars, drivers and bodyguards who were waiting for their respective characters, playing cards or chatting with each other. Fiat surveillance chiefs defined the directors to whom they provided their services as characters, and this terminology had become commonly used. Over the next few years, the number of servants waiting in the director's garage would gradually decline, almost to the point of extinction, due to the countless cost-saving campaigns and the end of terrorism. The office building of Fiat on Corso Marconi is described by Garuzzo, sort of like a cross between being John Malkovich and a Wes Anderson film. Quote, the building on Corso Marconi, a large barracks designed to serve as a hotel, was anonymous and not at all functional. A large corridor crossed each floor centrally, from which the doors to the rooms opened on both sides, with a hospital appearance accentuated by the imperfect maintenance of paint and floors. The exception was the top floor, the eighth, to which the media had attributed mythical connotations. From the first impression, the furnishings on that floor conveyed an image of both opulence and age. The walls were covered with hemp wallpaper or boisery, all played in shades of brown, like the carpet on the floors. Some furnishings looked rather strange, such as the heavy iron safes, light brown, or the walk-in closets, solid wood telephones, dark brown, set inside the secretariat's Booths that no one used, perhaps so as not to die of suffocation. I never understood for what purpose they were installed. Over time they were removed and the niches became wardrobes. The corner office belonged to Gianni Agnelli, the silver-haired grandson of the business's co-founder and the boss of Fiat. The strategy that made Agnelli super rich was tripling production of Fiat cars from 1960 to 1975. During that period, you're seeing a number of cars rolling off the assembly lines, mostly in Mirafiori, grow from 500,000 to 1.5 million. The way Agnelli did this was by getting all the companies who contracted parts for Fiat to make lots and cheap. This led to Fiat cars breaking easily, they were made fun of a lot in Italian society, and there was a constant blame game going on within management and between suppliers about how the low-quality cars they were contributing to kept breaking. Of course, a lot of people just blamed the workers. 
one of the things about Agnelli that was sort of weird about him was his fascination and adoration of the image of a dynamic entrepreneur. He was part of an immensely rich family, but he liked to hire on managers like Garuzzo or his boss, the CEO Carlo De Benedetti, from other companies, often from smaller ones. It's actually incredible. De Benedetti was a successful small business owner who managed to buy up a bankrupt company and turn it into a very profitable one quite quickly, gaining lots of investors in the process. Agnelli decided to buy him out by swapping fiat shares for a majority stake in De Benedetti's company, which made it basically a subsidiary of fiat, thus screwing over all the investors who thought the sky was the limit for this plucky new small business. De Benedetti was just 41 years old, with dark hair, graying at the sides, and a stocky build. He stuck out like a sore thumb among the moneyed elites of Turin, old gentlemen with frail figures, white hair, who looked like they were born wearing a double-breasted suit. He was also a forward thinker, having listed his small business on the stock market in a national economic scene that heavily disincentivized such moves. As I think I mentioned in the episode on the Sindona affair, the Italian stock market was purposely kept restricted to large companies by the super wealthy, maintaining a kind of elite club for financial wizards who could work together to stifle young up-and-comers while maintaining control over the financial maneuvers of the nation. In this way, De Benedetti was absorbed into the elites, but he wouldn't last long at Fiat. Garuzzo, de Benedetti's employee, who he brought into Fiat, would last a little longer. Garuzzo found that Fiat had a difficult organizational structure to follow. Its books were largely kept secret outside of the parent organization, and the accounts were picked over in an extremely assiduous manner by those who actually got to see them. And that certainly does not mean the tax man. The company was organized into 15 sectors under the impetus of Umberto Agnelli, which Garuzzo describes as, quote, operational macro units endowed with great autonomy and very broad responsibilities that range from product conception and development to sales and assistance on the model of some large American corporations. All the sectors, like industrial vehicles, agricultural tractors, components, steel, machine tools, 18-wheelers, railways, and so on, except automobile, were partitioned away from the main core of Fiat, which was called the parent company, by subholdings created during the mid-1970s. Soon after he brought on De Benedetti, Agnelli hired a third CEO, Cesare Romiti, they were put over two completely distinct clusters of sectors so that each CEO could be in charge completely of their own sort of territory. This led to some weird secrecy between them, where Romiti brokered a massive deal with the Libyan Arab bank that Benedetti had never known about. And people whispered that it was because De Benedetti was tied to the Jewish community of Italy and... Um, Fiat didn't want to make trouble with Gaddafi, who was very anti-Semitic. Within their headquarters, Fiat was like a renaissance court. These kinds of whisper campaigns and rumors took the place of head-on conflicts, and a lot was sorted out through that. So, within Fiat, Garuzzo gives us an idea of what was really going on, and it's sort of worlds apart from the prescriptive screeds of the Brigate Rosse and others. 
He writes that Gian Mario Rossignolo had been developing a product, a project that involved, quote, merging of all the operational activities of the components of Fiat into a single large, highly centralized organization led by an immense central body with 80 managers and a swarm of other collaborators. Rossignolo believed that the car industry had basically become a complete product, and since the industry would no longer be inventive, first world countries like Germany would pass it on to secondary countries like Italy, which would become responsible for their mass production. Garuzzo rejected this idea because each subsidiary of Fiat worked through a variety of different projects using various technologies with different geographical networks in competitive markets filled with companies who wanted to take a bite out of the share of profits. This was too complicated for a group of 80 managers to confer about, so in opposition, Garuzzo developed what would later become known as the Lean Organization, a decentralized model of corporate relations from the center to the subsidiaries, which he called clusters. Garuzzo believed this would be the most productive, competitive, and technologically adaptive model. And I'll get to the clusters in just a second. Benedetti fired Rossignolo, which was quite drastic, and then he began to suffer from mental illness. He was exhausted, paranoid, and stressed. There was a general feeling of social deterioration as the financial crisis deepened in 1976, the government entered a sustained political crisis, and the armed struggle turned to assassination. Even Agnelli himself began to tell close confidants that capitalism was dead, the company completely unmanageable, the factories totally out of control. In response, De Benedetti demanded more control over fiat structures. The radical demand was denied, and De Benedetti left fiat for good. Blaze of Glory Garuzzo says that the problem wasn't so much Benedetti as the Fiat model in the broadest sense. The cars were small to the point of being a novelty. People outside of Italy thought they were cute, but often impractical and noisy. So the market stayed in Italy, where a huge variety of Fiats were available. It was therefore a national car company that needed but couldn't grow on the international market. Benedetti did leave one final legacy. The Fiat Panda. It was small, but not too small. Its seats were modeled after lawn chairs and very inexpensive to make. And its trunk was made to pack in two two-liter wine containers. It was supposed to be the kind of car you could drive to work in, but also go take out camping. A kind of forerunner to the SUV, only in a compact car. The Panda didn't come out for another three years, and when it did, the WWF got very upset due to its branding, so they had to pay them off. For De Benedetti, it was a positive mark on his short term, but for Garuzzo, it was just another model that the company didn't need. As well, Garuzzo referred to the sector's system as effectively a feudal structure that was left unchanged after De Benedetti. Quote, the distribution of industrial power in fiat was feudal, and each feudal lord exercised absolute power within his own territory. The deference to the central power, the power of the emperor, was essentially ritual. Periodic ceremonies were held in which the court participated, crowded and codified meetings during which it was considered inappropriate to ask indiscreet questions to each feudal lord about what took place in his territory. An a priori lack of trust. 
Instead, it was taken for granted that generic and harmless exhortations were given which the feudal lords accepted willingly. In short, there was a tacit but precise and absolute subdivision in force. Industrial power was on the periphery, while the image of power was the exclusive prerogative of the center which used it for its extra-industrial digressions. This, to be fair, reads kind of like a prima linea communique, but it comes from a former senior executive at Fiat. Roberto Rosso, one of PL's founders, identified it as part of what he called the company command. He wrote, quote, We believe that there is, consolidating in our country, a political role of which we call the company command, i.e. the entire senior management cadre of companies, public and private, of confindustria associations, of financial institutions, who will determine the guidelines of the reorganization of production cycles, of the economic trend, of restructuring, of unemployment, of layoffs, of work rhythms. We believe that a fairly small political class is forming with a profound intelligence born of direct confrontation on the factory level with the social forces that have determined the need for transformation. So interestingly enough, this was not a, you know, theory that was uncommonly held in Italy. This was something that was constantly being debated in the press. Agnelli himself was constantly being criticized for his political motivations that way outstripped the needs of a simple corporation and for prioritizing, actually, his political role over the economic. More or less, though, P.L. believed that the feudal structure of fiat, with so much power concentrated at the top, represented just a single node in a network of several other top corporations and banks, all of which effectively colluding to control the direction of Italy. Later, conspiracy theorists would use the existence of the renegade Masonic Lodge, Propaganda Due, to confirm this logic. I have to say, after... <laughs> describing the Italian stock market and the collusion of economic interests, there are some complications within that whole theory. Sindona, for example, Michele Sindona, may have been protected by Giulio Andreotti of the Christian Democrats, but fiat executives would constantly complain about other Christian Democrats, like, funny enough, Carlo Donat Catin, whose son happened to be in Prima Linea but nobody really talked about that yet. And uh, everybody had accused Donat Katin Sr. of being too soft on the left. As well, Michele Sindona's collapse had come about partly because of his run-in with the more staid, competing, and larger financial enterprises within the Italian stock market who wanted to squash his financial dealings. As well, Garuzzo represented resistance to fiat feudalism within the company. At the end of De Benedetti's term, Garuzzo develops an idea that he calls clusters. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. They're also known as groupings, which would basically manage services, planning, and development for the companies owned by fiat. In this way, the groupings would work with the sectors as kind of a barrier between the companies and the central parent company. Thus, the parent company would manage the finances while the subsidiary companies functioned in their own environments in correspondence with the sectors. 
Garuzzo took over the components sector after De Benedetti left and created seven groupings of 30 companies that by themselves employed 42,000 people. Now, remember, there are 15 sectors, and this is just one of them, just to give you an idea of how enormous that company was. Anyway, and what a colossal lift that whole restructuring program might have been. Anyway, his sector was highly successful, but the Brigate Rosse got a hold of his proposal for clusters. He remembers, quote, The Red Brigades had studied my cluster project for components. In one of their hideouts, a document was discovered that described its structure in detail and analyzed the consequences on industrial efficiency. Between the lines, one could read a certain professional satisfaction, almost an admiration. Then, in the last pages, the tone changed abruptly, evidently by some political commissar, and the whole project was referred to as a monstrous machination planned against the proletariat. Now, it's true that the Red Brigade's document analyzing Fiat's up-and-coming cluster strategy is sort of mythologized at this point. However, the notion that some ideologue swooped in and changed the text in the last instance from an initial author who was enraptured with Garuzzo's plan, I mean, they probably just presented the document in a nice way so that the final effect of the blistering critique at the end would be emphasized. Anyway, this part of Garuzzo's note is pretty funny. Quote, I could read in it motivations and objectives that not only had I never thought about, but which it seemed to me the human mind could not even conceive. In those times, all of us fiat executives were at risk, and we knew very well that it would not be the escort that could save us in the event of an attack. So, on September 21st, 1979, shortly after their conference in Bordighera, Prima Linea wanted to crack into the factories again. Fiat manager for planning of production, Carlo Giliano, the thin man with glasses and graying hair, is getting into his Fiat Ritmo. Remember this from the beginning. He was leaving the Fiat Rivalta plant, which was their most futuristic. Its automated assembly line promised to be the future of Italy. A future Giliano would never know. With the elimination of Carlo Giliano, our organization opens the campaign of application of proletarian terror against the corporate control, in particular against fiat, in particular against that cadre that has functions of promotion and control management on the production process and therefore on the workers' labor through the logistic and IT functions. That's what Prima Linea announced. Carlo Giliano was one of these men. The ability to control the progress of the product along the assembly line in real time. The ability to coordinate the various production segments with each other. To constantly correlate sales prospects, production process. The flow of basic and intermediary pr products produces a work process without downtime. It squeezes the workers in a vice that squeezes out of them all the effort required to increase productivity. Attacking the functions of planning, logistics, information technology, and control means undermining that command apparatus which has taken on the task of alienating all workers' resistance. The document goes on to acknowledge a de facto convergence 
with the Red Brigades and declares that, quote, it is no longer the time for sectarian ruptures in the guerrilla movement of this country, much less the time to disarm it. It is not the time to offer the enemy's initiative, the tools to split the revolutionary lineup. On the contrary, it is time to reopen the debate in the body of the class with a tenacious and patient initiative starting from the formation of a political lineup, from the forging of ties of proletarian solidarity. The attack on Giliano did not add up for many within Mirefiori. The workers had won a great victory in 1973, conditions had improved massively since 1969, and the dynamics of migrant workers from the south competing with the northern Italian workers for jobs and pay were far less sharp. The generation gap was also different. The youth weren't fresh from the struggle in the universities, they were coming out of the experience of 77, the debilitating rise of hard drugs, and the despair of the Moro assassination. They wanted more than better factory conditions, they wanted more than factory life. Here's a union official describing the change. We are in the presence of an unequivocal decline in the social hegemony of the working class by the new generations. The tormented relationship of most of the delegates toward the young new workers is symptomatic. In my opinion, there is fear on both sides, young people and delegates. The former are afraid of the factory, of growing old in front of the press, of neurosis. The latter are afraid of putting into the slightest question their consolidated ideas and orientations. Just after the assassination of Giliano, another Fiat official, Cesare Varetto, from Industrial Relations at Fiat Mirafiori, was also injured by an armed group, and on October 5th, Prima Linea burst into a Turin consultancy firm called Proxy and kneecapped its managing director, Pier Carlo Andreoletti. Their communique decried the humanizing vision of capitalist development represented both by Giuliano and Andreoletti. In a few days, Fiat fired 61 worker activists, releasing a public statement about confronting terrorist threats. Injuries and assassinations are only the most painful and shocking aspect of a terrorist campaign that has grown out of the sabotage of production, intimidating phone calls, and acts of violence against managers, they declared. The union hesitated to support the 61 workers because they didn't want to stand on the side of violence. This suggested to Fiat's managers that they could really start much more expansive cuts. People were exhausted from the violence and chaos. Their chief executive, Cesare Romiti, said, quote, The 61 that they fired might as well have been 601. Only five had been directly tied to the armed struggle, and the reprisal was only the beginning. A PL patrol hit Pietro Orecchia on December 7th because a worker had been injured in his small factory. It was not just the relaunch of patrols, it was the statement that PL were back on the factory line. Four days later, a commando of Pialini overwhelmed and occupied the School of Business in Turin, gathering the students and professors in the Great Hall at gunpoint. The attackers, all with faces uncovered, randomly chose ten teachers and students and kneecapped them. Then they left a bullet with the custodian for Dalla Chiesa as a thought. 
It was an absolutely incredible act that put a cap on the 1970s, from a workers' movement spontaneously assembled in solidarity with the students for more work, less pay, to a commando of armed attackers randomly picking students and teachers in a business school to permanently injure. Their press release howled, quote, A drastic modification of the operational models of combat and attack is therefore required, which are no longer those of armed propaganda or even those of the deployed civil war. The aggregation of the proletarian force imposes a leap of quality on the comrades, on the structures, on the mass relationship, on the ability to identify the process of materialization of the antagonistic needs, to identify nodes of the command, to attack. So the PL had abandoned the idea of armed propaganda and of initiating a civil war, and they now sought to target nodal points of corporate control in order to develop an accelerating force of destruction that could break apart what they decided was the collusive unity of the ruling class. Yet, PL's new direction and identity would not be deployed in the near future on behalf of the class it claimed to support. Instead, they had isolated William Wacker as a snitch. Whether it was true, we don't know. And on February 4th, 1980, within a few yards of his house, Mario Ferrandi murdered him. While the murder may have seemed like a great idea at the time to show the harder edge of the new front line, to most in the movement, it was just further dispiriting. Wacker had been friends with a lot of young activists, with people in the area of Rosso, and his murder at the hands of the armed struggle caused an acceleration of the disintegration of Prima Linea. People within the movement had come to actively hate what was increasingly accepted as terrorism. Meanwhile, Fiat is still rolling out automated production lines, and in September of 1980, a year after the firing of the 61, Fiat announced a full 14,469 redundancies. The union immediately called for solidarity strikes throughout the Fiat factories and for a one-day strike across Piedmont. That's the kind of thing that would have kicked off a new hot autumn. If 14,469 redundancies had been called in 1969, it would have meant solidarity strikes throughout the country. Occupations. The Chisel, one of the leading trade unions, declared, We're at war, under bombardment. Victory is too big a word to describe even the best possible outcome of the struggle. There will be a decimation whatever happens, and after that, both fiat and the union will emerge transformed. The effects of the struggle will only appear in the long term. The gauntlet had been thrown, and the unions weren't backing down. Communist Party General Secretary Enrico Berlinguer likened the strike in Italy to the Solidarność trade union movement in Poland that opposed the Soviets. Here is peak Eurocommunism, the union movement opposing the bad hardliners of fiat who may as well have been Soviet apparatchiks. Now, I haven't gone as deeply into the parliamentary shuffling that was going on between 1979 and 1980, but the Italian state went through three prime ministers in those two years. 
Andreotti had to resign after the Communist Party left its agreement of no, no confidence. The slack was picked up by Francesco Cosiga, the hard-right former minister of the interior involved in strong anti-communist action. And then, on September 27th, the Cosiga government collapsed when it failed to pass a budget. Hours after the government's collapse, again, September 27th, 1980, Fiat rescinded the mass firings. The unions canceled the strikes. And three days later, Fiat announced 22,884 workers would be dismissed to the status of working outside of the factory. This meant that they would be promised future work within the corporation or its subsidiaries somewhere at some time. A large number of these were activists, workers, women, disabled people, almost all of them manual workers. Interestingly, it seems that the Communist Party was actually part of forming this plan. Fiat executive Cesare Romiti stated that he worked with Luciano Lama, the boss of communist-linked trade union uh, Cegeyela, to formulate the strategy. Quote, when Fiat had to engage in the battle against trade union extremism and the terrorism of the Red Brigades that had nestled in the factories, I remember going to inform Lama of our decision to lay off 20,000 employees. I told him, we want to strike at the heart of all of this rottenness within the company, and he was generous with advice. Anyway, Romiti might be lying, but it would make sense with what happened later. Workers started restoring the struggle. They set up a radio station in a bus at Gate 5 of Mirafiori and established kitchens, sleeping areas, and tents around the district, which is about 6.8 miles of fenced perimeter. When Berlinguer went to the gates, a Chisel activist asked him, If we occupy, where will the party stand? He responded that the party would always stand with the workers. Now remember that Fiat is an enormous company with 238,000 employees, give or take. To keep that kind of company going, you need thousands and thousands of managers. Fiat executive Cesare Romiti had the idea of rallying as many of those middle managers, managers, white-collar workers, as he possibly could in a counter-protest. Called the March of 40,000, the march happened on October 14th and comprised about 12 to 15,000 demonstrators, according to the cops, 15,000 according to TV news, and 30,000 according to the company paper La Stampa. It was publicized afterwards as the March of 40,000 by Corriere della Sera and La Repubblica, and for some reason that's what stuck. Anyway, the counter-protests, dressed in gray suits, set up a striking contrast to the colorful workers. They had placards calling for an end to violence and a return to work. The impression it made in Italian society was profound. Marco Revelli wrote, quote, A night of tense expectation had been followed by scenes of virtual civil war, with the gray colorless mass of white-collar workers, middle management, and foremen stretched out along Corso Unione Sovietica, threatening the colorful line-up of the workers' pickets outside the factory, and between the two, the large, dark line of the Carabinieri, and a tension in the air. He continues, They came down like sheep, uniform and gray like the walls of the factory, with the dull noise of rolling pebbles, of muted whisperings, of dragging footsteps, this sort of noise that comes from a waiting crowd, or from a funeral. 
They slowly filled the center of the city. No symbols, no color, no banners. They were a piece of the factory transferred into the city, a subjective expression of labor without subjectivity. And yet, he continues, they were the victors, the prime movers of the battle, because the miraculous had happened. The man of no qualities, the atomized, serialized, homogenized factor of produ production par excellence had formed into an aggregate, had taken on a collective dimension, a vitality of its own. He had mobilized. This was the first time in Italy, and perhaps also in Europe, that capital had directly organized an anti-working class mass, unified at the level of support for management, and cemented via an ideology of work. In the words of Tanturli, the interval between the anger of the workers of the 70s and the employers of the 80s had been crossed. In a sense, you could say that the March of 40,000 was a media event, something blown out of proportion and carried away by even left-wing publications like Manifesto and Repubblica. On another level, you could say it was the accumulation of right-wing tactics learned from the days of the silent majority protests in early 1970s Milan. In a sense, it was a stroke of genius from the fiat corporate executives. But then again, it may have been true that Romiti worked with Lama to set the whole thing up. After all, Romiti said, quote, A few hours after the 40,000 march, Lama called me to congratulate me. He continued, Lama had understood that control of the factories was slipping out of the union's hands. Of course, because he was an intelligent man, and I pushed for them to let us do our fight against the violent and the gray areas, because all in all, it also benefited the Union. Lama understood this very well, even if he didn't tell me openly that I was right, not even after the March of the 40,000, which was the emblem of their defeat. On the next day, at 2 p.m., the Union bosses convened at a cinema outside of Turin with the Fiat Workers' Council. The poster on the wall advertised a showing of Apocalypse Now. Luciano Lama, the union boss, had determined that the managed mobility offered by Fiat was okay. Bruno Trentin, another union leader, said that the deal would be worse if the struggle continued. Soon the factory delegates started to shout in outrage, booing and whistling at the union bosses. The rank-and-file delegates once again broke with their leadership and voted against the deal. But the strike was over. The strike had been 35 days, not long compared to other strikes that had hit Italy, but still felt as one of the hardest, if not the hardest, of the post-war period. Cesare Romiti described what followed in the book Storia Segreta del Capitalismo Italiano. He said that, at a Confindustria conference shortly thereafter, Berlinguer tried to regain ground against the industrialists. I remember him well because he spoke before me. He was small, pale, gaunt. His body was lost in his suit. He said that the Communist Party promised itself a policy that would meet the needs of companies, that it was necessary to put an end to the acrimony that occurred. In short, he spoke a lot in favor of industrialists and companies, and this sounded strange in a leader who not long before was at the gates of Mirafiori haranguing the workers. Romiti spoke right after Berlinguer, saying, quote, Don't believe him! What Berlinguer has told you now is exactly the opposite of what he and his party think. 
They don't want the companies to prosper. They don't want a climate of dialogue to be established because he is still irredeemably attached to the Soviet model. Uromiti later recalled, I gave a terrible speech. Then I got off the stage and walked past him to greet him. Berlinguer held out his hand to me, a cold hand. I remain convinced that some of his traits, morals, were authentic, just as certain of his reflections on the evolution of Italian society were authentic. Soon after Fiat shed 20,000 workers, Garuzzo started getting involved in Magneti Marelli's Crescenzago plant, a mid-sized factory making things like spark plugs. Basically, they made cheap products, but they didn't sell enough of them, so it was a failing business. This is one of the most conflictive factories in all of Italy. The factory committee had been part of Lotto Continua, but broke off in 1975 and became Senza Tregua, later to become Prima Linea. This was the group responsible for the assassination of the Fiat manager... Guilliano, in 1979, that triggered the big layoffs of 1980. Garuzzo introduced widespread layoffs to the Crescenzago factory, but since the layoffs similarly involved some trade-offs, the union didn't intercede with strikes and so forth. PL had been challenged at their point of origin, and they had been completely routed. The experience of PL was closed. It turned into a story of pentiti and arrests, not of heady conferences and actions. It was the beginning of what became known as the 20 years of social peace, a period of union collaboration in the modernization of fiat and a time of increasing unemployment and the immiseration of the Italian working class. The autonomous left had fought ferociously against the media and the unions and the party for a decade, but with the rise of the armed struggle's mistakes and failures, their exuberance had declined. For scholar Steve Wright, 1980 was the year of the end of the workerist idea that the mass workers' subjectivity could overcome the resistance of the party bureaucracy to refound a truly revolutionary left. Wright identified three major weaknesses in workerism. First, in its penchant for all embracing categories that in seeking to explain everything too often would clarify very little. Second, the too narrow focus upon what Marx termed the immediate process of production as the essential source of working class experience and struggle. In other words, they became too obsessed with the factories, and the unions seem to have sacrificed almost 10% of the fiat workforce just to shake it free of the radicals. The third weakness of the workerist movement for right was political impatience. As a result of the defeat of workerism, the social peace settled like a miasma over the working class. From 1982 to 1987, the male unemployment percentage rose from around 4.8 to 6.5%, and the suicide rate jumped from 6.3 in 1983 to 10 in 1987. After a brief decline in unemployment between 1987 and 1990, during which the suicide rate declined again, unemployment rose to above 8.5 by 1995, and suicides rose again from under 8 up to 12. So, from the early 1980s to the mid-1990s, unemployment and suicide for women followed pretty much exactly the same correlation. So, 
from the early 1980s to the mid-1990s, during the social peace, both unemployment and suicides had almost doubled. So, there's a lot to unpack here, and we still have a little more to discuss about the final collapse of the Brigate Rosse and the Propaganda Due, but for now, we'll leave it here, with the end of Prima Linea and the rise of the social peace. Thanks as always for listening. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pot. <laughs>